This morning, as we continue our study through the book of Romans, we'll be in chapter 7, and we'll be looking at two verses, uh, verses 7 and 8. Last week, we finished uh, the argument Paul began in Romans chapter 6, verse 15. He'd ask a question. He'd said, what then? Are we to sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? And his immediate answer was, I should have this by now, by no means. He then, in Romans chapter 6, verse 16 to 7, verse 6, justifies this answer with two illustrations. First, using the illustration of slavery, he says that those who are in Christ, those who are under grace, saved by grace through faith, you were once slaves to sin, but now you're slaves to God. Therefore, having been freed from sin, from being under the authority of sin, you're now under the authority of God, and you cannot, you must not, therefore continue in sin. Then, to make this even more clear, he turns to the illustration of marriage. He says, you were once married to the law. You were under the law. You served the law. You believed, as Chad just reminded us, we as humans believe Salvation comes through obedience, through our own good works, through keeping the law. But now you've died in Christ and therefore you're released from your marriage to the law. You no longer belong to the law. You belong to another. You're married to Christ. Therefore, based on Christ's love for you, this relationship you have with Christ, your, and your love for Christ, you cannot, you must not, continue in sin. Now, as Paul made these arguments that we saw over the past several weeks against continuing in sin, he talked about who we were before Christ and who we are now in Christ. Before Christ, we were under the law, married to the law, and slaves to sin. But in contrast, once we're in Christ, we're no longer under the law, but we're under grace. We're no longer slaves to sin, we're slaves to God. And we're no longer married to the law, we're married to Christ. Now notice, on the positive side, on the in Christ side, there's grace, and there's God, and there's relationship with Christ. And on the negative side, there's the law and sin. And this might cause you to think that Paul is saying that the law, therefore, is a bad thing. So anticipating that kind of thinking, in Romans chapter 7, verse 7, Paul introduces another question. This is like how he write, writes. He has a question and then he explains, he, he answers it, then he explains his answer. This question is, what then shall we say? That the law is sin? What Paul has just written might imply That the law is sinful. The law is in some way equal to sin. But again, like the question in chapter 6, he gives the same short answer. By no means. And like before, the short answer is then followed by a, a, a much longer explanation. Specifically, Paul will explain the relationship of the law to sin. If the law isn't sin then why, are they, why have I been so closely talking about them? Why are, am I putting them together? Why am I talking about under the law, slaves to sin, married to, God, married to the law? Why are they so closely linked? What's the relationship? 
between the law and sin. And the first thing Paul points out in verse 7 that we're going to look at is by no means the law is not sin. Instead, the law reveals sin. He's already said in Romans 3.20, if you were with us back then, through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Now in verse 7 of chapter 7, he writes, Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. Notice Paul says, I would not have known sin. This marks a shift in his writing. From verse 6 of chapter 7 to verse 7, Paul beginning in in chapter uh, 7, verse 7, till the end of this chapter, Paul will write in a very personal manner. He'll use himself as an example. If you look at the book of Romans, after Paul introduces himself at the, at the, very, the first 16 verses of the book, uh, chapter 1, verse 1 to 16, if you look at chapter 1, verse 17, all the way to chapter 7, verse 6, where he's explaining the gospel, talking about our need for the gospel, and then he talks about uh, uh, how we receive the gospel, In that section there, the, that uh, almost seven chapters, he uses the personal pronouns I, me, and my a total of eight times. But from chapter 7, verse 7, to the end of the chapter, verse 25, he uses these three personal pronouns 49 times. So as we walk through Romans 7, we'll, we'll, we'll learn from Paul's personal experience. As he begins by writing, if it not had... if it Had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. Through the law, Paul came to recognize his own sin. He began to see that he himself was sinful because it's the law that shows us which thoughts and which acts are contrary to the will of God. Now, as a Jew and as a Pharisee, you guys know about the Pharisees, they were uh, uh, adhered to the law They took pride in their adherence to the law. Paul studied and sought with all of his heart to keep the law of Moses. For him, the law was synonymous. For him, the law was synonymous with when he talked about the law, he's talking about the law given to Moses, those those first five books, especially of the Old Testament. But the law can also refer to uh, law in a more general way. In Romans 2.15, Paul writing. Uh, of Gentiles who didn't have the law of Moses, he said, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their consciences also bear witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. God has written His law on our hearts. He's given us a conscience knowing, at least in part, the difference between right and wrong. I remember as as a kid who didn't go to church, who had not read the Bible, I still knew in my heart that it was wrong to pick on my little brother. Felt bad about it. Now, that didn't stop me from doing it. And that's another problem we'll talk about shortly. But my point is, the law written on our hearts can and often does reveal our sin. But our conscience isn't foolproof. We're marred by sin. 
And we, with, with the help of our culture, there's sort of this partnership, we can convince ourselves that what is right is wrong and what is wrong is right. I've known people who claim to be Christians, but under the influence of our current uh, sex-saturated culture have convinced themselves that sex outside of marriage is okay in their special circumstance. So we cannot always rely on our, our own uh, heart but we can't always rely on the inspired Word of God. And God in His Word gave us some specific commandments. And as we read and come to know and understand these commandments, they reveal where our sin lies. The law is the, the standard that we are, are to be measure, measure our lives up against. The law reveals our sin. Paul then goes on to explain specifically how the law revealed the sin in his own life. How, how, how it, it, he didn't measure up to one of the, uh, specifically the Ten Commandments. Verse 7 continues, For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Without the law, Paul wouldn't have been, able, been aware of his, his covetousness. Now why do you think Paul chose uh, the example of covetousness? Covet. Covetousness? I shouldn't write words uh, out. I can't say. I should like make up new ones. How is this, the Tenth Commandment, that's what thou shalt not covet, Tenth Commandment, different from the other nine? Have you ever thought about that? It's different because it deals specifically with our internal emotions and feelings, with our, with our heart, with our desires, not with external actions. Paul had been a Pharisee. And the Pharisees thought of sin only in terms of external actions. They believed that as long as they didn't perform an evil act, they were not guilty of sin. Their consciences marred by sin in partnership with their religious culture had released them from examining their internal uh, thoughts and motivations. And when you're not concerned with exter- with when you when you're only concerned with externals, it's far easier to think of yourself as an obedient, law-abiding person, right? If I can think and feel any way I want, and all I have to do is put on an external show, then I can live a pretty moral life. Now Jesus rebuked the Pharisees for this way of thinking. In Matthew chapter 23, verse 27, he writes, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness. Jesus taught that the law refers not only to our external behavior, but also our internal attitudes, our motives. He taught that not only is the external act of, of murder sin, but so is the internal hatred. He taught not only is the external act of adultery sin, but so is internal lust. So we, uh, we as New Testament believers who've, who've heard sermons uh, on the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says such things should, should understand the reality of eternal, internal sins of the heart. However, if you read the first nine commandments as they're written in Exodus chapter 20, verse 1 to 17, we won't do that. You can do that on your own if you'd like. You could easily look at them only in terms of external behavior. You could easily tick them off and and feel that you were keeping the law. 
You could say, I haven't worshipped an idol. I don't even have any idols in my house. Haven't disobeyed my parents. Haven't killed, lied, stolen. Haven't committed adultery. Look at how awesome I am. So it's possible to interpret the law uh, superficially. Seeing it only as behavioral rules that are not That you, can, that you can possibly muster up the, your own ability to keep. And, and this could lead you to believe, as Paul the Pharisee did, that, that you could earn your salvation by keeping the law. That's, that's what it meant to be under the law. But that's not possible when you come to the Tenth Commandment. The last commandment is the one that cannot be reduced to externals. It's the, it's the last commandment that convicted Paul. Again, he writes, For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. You shall not covet has everything to do with your inward attitudes, your heart issues. To covet means to be discontent with what God has given you. Coveting includes envy and and self-pity. Grumbling and complaining. Coveting is not simply wanting. It's an idolatry idolatrous longing for more, more beauty, more wealth, more approval, more popularity. It's not always wrong to want things, such things, but, but, but if you're bitter and angry and wallow in self-pity when you don't receive them, when you're envious of others who do have them, it's because your desires have become idolatrous. Idolatrous coveting. And it seems that Paul, a Pharisee, for most of his life, never understood the internal nature of sin. He'd never understood the the sin of coveting to be a sin against God. Failing to love God enough to be content with Him and what He provides. That's how Paul in uh, Philippians 3.6 could describe himself prior to his conversion, prior to this understanding of the sin of covetousness. He could say, right, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. He says of himself, in his own eyes, Paul was blameless because he maintained an external conformity to the law. He disciplined himself to rigorously obey these external commandments. But when it came to the commandment, thou shall not covet, he had no ability to obey because it was a matter of the heart. So Paul says, It was the law against covetousness that enabled me to see my sin. If it hadn't been for this law, I wouldn't have known my sin. This is how the law revealed sin to me. It it brings us face to face with the commandments of God. Commandments that we, we are not and cannot in our own power obey. The law is not sin. The law reveals sin in our life. And you know what? That's a good thing. It's a great thing. Because once sin has been revealed, once we understand our own sinfulness, once once we come face to face with with our own inability to be righteous before God, it's then that we're able to admit our sinfulness and turn to God alone for salvation. And the question I'd ask us today, has the law, either the law written on your heart, not corrupted yet, uh, or the law specifically contained in the Word of God, has, has that law revealed to you just how sinful you are? Maybe like Paul, you've been able to live a pretty decent life. I'm, I'm a good guy. 
You haven't committed any big external sins. And, and you think this means you're righteous under the law. That you're blameless. And if that's the case, then I would encourage you to examine your heart based on the law of God. Allow the truth of God's Word to, to penetrate your heart. To reveal your sin. Because when it does, it's when we see our sin, uh, that's a good thing. For it's not until we know just how sinful we are that we'll turn to God for salvation. That was true for Paul. And that's true for every person who's ever lived. Why do you think Paul spent so much time, why we spent so much time in Romans chapter 1.17 to chapter 3 verse 16 where he talks about uh, just how sinful humanity is. How hopelessly sinful we are. He did that so we'll give up on our efforts to try and earn our own salvation through our own righteousness. And instead we'd fall on our faces before God would see the need for the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And would put our faith in in the grace of God and, and the mercy of God to save us through the finished work of Jesus Christ. The law reveals our sin and therefore our need for salvation through Christ alone. And even after we come to that initial understanding of our sinfulness, have you come to understand your own personal sinfulness? Even after that, Even after we turn to God for salvation through Christ, the law continues to play a vital role in our lives, revealing the sin in our lives. God continues to use His law to show us where we need to change, where we need to grow. It's been my experience, the the longer I'm a Christian, the more I study the Word of God, the more sin God reveals in my life. hope that doesn't discourage you. Yes, in the power of the Spirit, I I have been able to overcome sin. But God, through His Word, through His law, continues to show me where I'm I'm not measuring up. Just one example for those who who might feel they're getting pretty close. Okay, I'm pretty good. I'm getting pretty close to overcoming sin in my life. One example from the law that that continues. uh, It's where I go every time I'm feeling, I'm, I'm doing okay. Where I need some humbling. It humbles me and it helps me to, to see the distance I still need to travel before I can be fully sanctified, fully set apart, fully conformed to the image of Christ. In Matthew chapter 26, Jesus is asked, we're all familiar with this, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And in verses 37 and through 39, quoting from the Old Testament law, Deuteronomy chapter 6-5 and Leviticus chapter 19-18, he replies, this is the answer, greatest commandment, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Notice the inescapable internal nature of those two uh, overarching commands. You shall love God and you shall love your neighbor. You shall love people. Love is an internal feeling from the heart. No matter how many people try to tell you love is, love is a verb. Love is an action. Love doesn't have anything to do with what's inside. Paul, uh, Jesus makes it clear it has everything to do with what's inside. Obedience to the law of God requires an internal heart transformation. 
The law commands us to love God above all else. To love God with everything we have in our mind, in our heart, in our soul. And to love our neighbor. To love others as we love ourselves. And if we consider just how much time and effort and resources we spend to make sure that we are fed and clothed and comfortable and secure, I would say it's clear that we love ourselves quite a bit. So my question is, how are you doing in obeying these great commandments? Because to the extent you do not love God with everything you are, and to the extent you do not love your neighbor as yourself, you are in disobedience to God. And the law is revealing your sin and my sin. Now, my point isn't to bring condemnation. My point is to bring revelation. To show how the law continues to reveal our sin and therefore continues to call us day in and day out to depend on God. Not, for salv- not only for our salvation. It's not a one-time, okay, I depended on God. I, I walked the altar. I said the prayer. I'm saved. It's a continual dependence on God that He'll work in our lives, that He'll bring us through this process of sanctification, bring us day by day closer to the image of Jesus Christ. There's no way in my own strength, in your own strength, that we will ever have the ability to even approach keeping these commandments without God doing a work in us. And so the law drives me to God. It shows me where I I don't measure up and it pushes me to depend on His Spirit to overcome my sin. So the law reveals sin that we might turn to God for salvation and the law continues to reveal sin that we might depend on God for our sanctification. But But the law also does more than reveal sin. I think that's, I would say, that's the main purpose of the law, to reveal our sin, okay? But then Paul's going to go on and tell us another thing the law does. I don't, this, is, this is a side effect based on who we are. Because of our sin, the law now does something else. The law provokes sin. That's our second point. In Romans 7.5, Paul had already written, for while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. Now in verse 8, he writes, But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. We usually think of sin as something we do. Okay, Yesterday, I sinned by getting angry and kicking my dog. I I really didn't do that. That's just an example. Well, maybe a little kick. But here Paul is saying that sin... is, is the, that sin is the one doing the action. Sin seizing an opportunity. Here, as in many places we'll see in Romans chapter 7, Paul is referring uh, not to an act of a sinful act, but to the insidious, I would say, nature of sin or to the sin nature. To understand this, it might think to help to think back to the illustration we used in Romans chapter 6. We pictured, if you remember, our lives before coming to Christ as a country with a wicked army in control. A wicked army that that we followed into acts of sinfulness. And that wicked army is really a picture of the nature of sin or the sin nature. 
And here Paul says the nature of sin is to seize an opportunity through the commandment. That word opportunity was used of, of, a, of a military base. It's a starting point or a base of operations for an expedition to be sent out. It was a springboard for further advance. So sin, this wicked army, establishes within us this base, this foothold, by means of the commandments which provoke us. This provocative power of the law is something I think we've all experienced. Ever since the fall, human beings have been enticed by the forbidden fruit, right? We have this strange propensity to react negatively to any uh, commandment. You, sh- you shall not. We, what? Who are you to tell me what I shall not? We're selfish and we're a rebellious people. For example, we see a sign, a, a law that says no trespassing. Now, prior to seeing the sign, we're walking down the road We had no desire to go where that sign is. But after seeing the sign, we wonder, what are they trying to keep me from? They can't keep me from that. We want to push the limits. We want to go where we're not supposed to go. We want to go where the law says stop, and we want to uh, uh, stop where the law says go. Why? Because we're sons and daughters of Adam. We've been corrupted by sin, and this corruption includes this desire to do, to do things, to do something for no other reason than because it's forbidden. We find joy in wrongdoing for wrongdoing's sake. Paul's point is that until the command against an evil thing comes to us, we may feel little urge to do it. But when we hear the command, we're provoked, and our corrupt sinful nature is, is stirred up and may even take over. When I was a kid, my, my parents uh, didn't allow me to use profanity. They, they actually still don't. But, but at least on one occasion, when my parents were not around, and I was with kids my own age, I remember for no real reason, we would take turns saying uh, every profane word we could think of. And unfortunately, we could think of quite a few. I won't say where we heard them, though. Now, we were not saying these bad words and phrases because we were experiencing a bad situation. You know, I can understand a little profanity here and there. When, has anybody seen that, the movie The Martian? There was a time when uh, Matt Damon, he's planting all these toma- potatoes, he's taking, and all of a sudden something happens in his whole, and he says this word, I'm not going to repeat it, but that was like the first time in a movie I said, that word belonged there. That was a real situation. But we were saying them only because they were forbidden. And, and when we, with, with fear and trepidation, would utter these profane words, great uproarious laughter would occur. We experienced joy through disobedience to the law of our parents. That's what Paul means when he says, sin seizes an opportunity through the commandment. For me, the commandment was, thou shalt not curse. And sin, knowing I found joy in violating the commandment, seized the opportunity and pro- produced in me all kinds of profanity. This is how the law provokes sin. And this truth can, can help us to understand the nature of sin. What it is at its essence. It's not just doing uh, wrong things. At its heart, sin is an attitude of rebellion against all that is right. And therefore, an attitude of rebellion against God Himself. 
Augustine, in his Confessions, gives his own personal example of this. He says, one night at the age of 16, in, in, the company, in, excuse me, in company with a gang of naughty adolescents, he shook a pear tree and stole its fruit. His motives, he confesses, uh, his motive, he confesses, was not that he was hungry, for after tasting a few, they, they threw the pears to the pigs. I stole something which I had plenty of and of much, much better quality. My desire was to enjoy not what I sought by stealing, but merely the excitement of thieving and the doing of what was wrong. Was it possible, he asked himself, to take pleasure in what was illicit for no reason other than it was not allowed? Augustine went on to say that there is always a, a depth motive for every sin. When a person lies or steals or is impure or cruel, there's always a superficial motive. There's greed or anger and so on. But his experience of the pear tree and his study of Scripture showed him that the underlying ultimate motive of our sin is to play God. We have a deep desire to be in charge of the world and our lives, the world of our lives. We, we want to be in control. We want to be sovereign over us. And every law that God gives is really this infringement on our authority over us, on our sovereignty. It reminds us that we are not God. And it prevents us from having complete control over our lives to do what we want to do, to be like or to be God. What was the first temptation from the serpent in the Garden of Eden? He says to Eve, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of, of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You will be like God. That was the essence of the first sin, and it's really the, at the heart of all sin. Therefore, since the essence of sin is the desire to play God, to have uh, no infringements on our sovereignty over our own lives, then every law provokes us to sin. And therefore, more, the more we're exposed to the law of God, the more we're provoked to react in sinful ways. But that in no way, and this is what Paul is saying, that in no way means there's a problem with the law. The problem is with our own sinful hearts. The law just reveals who we are. It reveals who we want to be. The, the sinful heart twists the function of the law from revealing and exposing and condemning and convicting sin into encouraging and even provoking it. We cannot blame the law for proclaiming God's will. Now for the sake of time, yeah, time. This morning we're going to stop at, at verse 8. But in verses 9 through 12, which we'll get to next week, maybe all of them, Paul will continue to explain this relationship between law and sin. And, but before we turn to communion, I just want, want us to see the conclusion that Paul is leading us to. I'm going to skip over uh, 9, 10, 11 to verse 12. I want us to see quite clearly that the law opposes sin. What is sin but, but disobedience to God? Desire to be God. To be counter to God. Rebellion against a holy, righteous, and good God. 
And what is the law but the revelation of the will of that holy, righteous, and good God? And therefore the law opposes sin in every way. Paul makes the oh so this very clear. Verse 12, he concludes this section by writing, So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. We'll look at this more next week again, but, but I want us to understand that even though the law reveals and even provokes sin, it's, it's also in direct opposition to sin. The law of God is holy, it's sacred, it's pure, it's blameless. The law of God is righteous, it's right, it's true in all things. The law of God is good. It's a good thing to know and to study and to understand and to obey the law of God. To allow the law to reveal your sin and to recognize and fight against sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment to provoke us to more and more sin. The law is good, and it's good for us. It's a, it's a blessing. As David writes in Psalm 1, I'm going to read this from the New Living Translation for my wife. She, she likes that translation. Oh, the joys of those who do not follow the advice of the wicked, or stand around with sinners, or join in with mockers, but, but they delight in the law of the Lord. Is the law of the Lord a delight for you? meditating on it day and night. Do you, do you meditate on the law of the Lord, the, the Word of God? Do you take it in? They're like trees planted along the riverbank, bearing fruit each season. Their leaves never wither, and they prosper in all that they do. As Anthon comes to lead us in communion, I'd encourage us to allow the law to serve its purpose in your life. That you would reflect on the commandments of God. That you would allow the law to reveal your sin. Not, not, not so you can say, oh, there's my sin. If I don't stop that, I'm going to hell. You've been saved by grace through faith. The law now is seeking to conform you into the image of Christ. So that you can confess and repent and come to the communion table with a clean heart. Ready to remember and celebrate the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who died for our sin. The one who releases us from the power of sin. The one who empowers us to keep this holy and righteous and good law of God. Would you pray with me this morning? Father God, empower us today. Lord, thank You for Your law. Thank You that, that it is there as a mirror in many ways to reflect where we're falling short, where we're not following after You, where we're not receiving all that You have to offer us in obedience. Lord, help us to be a people who who know and apply Your Word, Your law to our lives. That You would use it. That You would use it to draw people to Yourself initially, to come to salvation, and that You would use it in our lives to continue the process of sanctification, to becoming more and more like Jesus Christ. For it's in His name we pray. Amen.